Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on August the 9th, 2015. You know, big agendas and plans and projects planned at incredibly high levels of power and money because they both go together. You'll find that they take years in preparing anything such as a revolution. Most folk think of bloody revolutions. That's what they are in history books and so on. That's what they think. But most revolutions are bloodless, basically. And even Benjamin Franklin, you'll find, and others too, in the history books, talked about the preparation for revolution. So even for a a bloody revolution, he said it took about 25 years of secrecy and organization, working with uh, financiers and ship owners and so on to bring in and smuggle in gunpowder, ball, muskets, etc., in preparation for the final onslaught, basically, for so-called freedom. And that's a whole different topic altogether, this amorphous thing called freedom, which is so elusive, isn't it? It's like jumping out of one cage into another, basically. That's what you find most of the time. Because there are those at the top who understand power. Since they have the power, they have the histories and archives of power, going way back probably thousands of years. And they know enough about human society and the human psychology and social psychology and all the other ologies, etc., to know how to manipulate different segments of society into a desired path for the, the owners, elites. The elites basically benefit, not for the ones at the bottom. So it's well understood, this, this technique. And since most revolutions are bloodless, and we're all going through and having for quite some time, this revolution, this social revolution, an economic revolution, all going towards one big global society where the same world elite will be in the open as the, the power elite for the first time. They'll be in your face in it to an extent. And it's so well guarded it won't matter because they don't mix amongst you anyway. They don't travel amongst you and so travel over you and underneath you, but they don't travel amongst you. And they'll be basically in the open then, strutting around, etc. But in the meantime, uh, they've spent generations in this revolution towards a, a totally expert-controlled society. That's what they claim, an expertly controls us. By basically bringing on, on board all academia, the top brains in their fields, etc., and sciences of management of humans and managing our thoughts and so on. And I've often said, where do your thoughts come from? Most folk never question that concept at all. When you're young, you have a, a natural hypnotic state. And they have terms for all of this, of course, because there's different states of awareness. There's, there's ones where you're on, you're on high alert. Uh, soldiers uh, are on high alert when they're in the field, etc. And you also have, and you should be on more high alert when you're driving, but we're all prone to go into the next stage 
again close to the hypnotic stage, which is daydreaming. We muse about things. And most of the things you muse about are from entertainment and all the little, again, nudges as they call them, and updates for your political correctness are embedded within what you enjoy, you see. The enjoyment part is the hook to get the nudge into you. And when you're in the, the kind of musing state, you, you, you can't differentiate between your updates of an agenda and your own particular thoughts on things. It's all, it goes under the radar to an extent of, of the sensor part of your brain and the reasoning part of your brain and becomes part of basically your thoughts on different topics. When those topics are mentioned, you come up and you spout the stuff off and sometimes you wonder where it all came from. But your, your thoughts really often, for a lot of people, are truly not their own. Therefore, when you're going through a big revolution, which most folk are unconscious of, or unaware of, then it takes a lot of preparation on everyone's brains of all age groups and personality types and so on to prepare them all to go along and accept things as they seem to come willy-nilly or by chance or just happening and, and go along with them all without retaliation or simply saying, no, I'm not going along with this, you see. And that's what the whole academic idea of what socialism should be. The proper citizens brought up from birth to be the, the right kind of citizens, to be trained to have all the thoughts implanted in them through education, which is indoctrination and in social engineering. Uh, and, and, and then once you leave academia and go into trying to earn a living, etc., then they, they go into entertainment, mainly entertainment. And so entertainment must be crammed full of the nudges and social updates and, and so on for political correctness so that they'll accept what comes along. And right now you look at the world and even the alternate media, which again, a lot of it is completely managed, you know, you, you, you'll find that it's all, oh my God, it's all haphazard. Everything's just happening and and all wrong things are happening and, and they give you emotive topics to scream about, etc. And and folk do, they'll start arguing about things. It's just chaos, you see. So they can't get on uh, to a full grasp of what really is happening and why they're even reacting that way. Because folk do react. And elites always know this. Intelligence agencies know this too, of emotional reaction. Uh, therefore, you, you give them all the things to be emotive about, so they have emotive topics. I mean, politics is one emotive topic. And you get the left wing, the right wing there together in a bar and listen to them go at it. And it's just, it's just literally, it's like both sides quoting a form of Marxist doctrine of their implants, you might say, of thoughts given to them. They can't think for themselves. They can't reason for themselves. They never stop and say, well, politics worked. Why, how come it isn't banned? Uh, I mean, basically, it's never worked for the benefit of the general population because there's always a big agenda. And today we live in a big agenda where the power elites truly own all sides, truly own all sides. And they, they groom 
the leaders, what appears to be the leaders for the public and, and the political arena, they, they, they groom these leaders from an early age to play the role. And that's what it is. It's a role, you see. No different from acting. They all belong to the same class. They all get, get the benefits of top shares and top guaranteed um, investments to become awfully wealthy. doesn't matter what they pretend they're standing for. That's a complete joke, isn't it? How can working, so-called people working, uh, standing up for the working class, how could they possibly be multimillionaires with their political career? I mean, it's rubbish, folks. But it doesn't matter, because truth doesn't matter with folk who, in the general audience who are brought up on emotive topics and they're brought up to have default positions on emotive topics like fuzzy animals or, or hugging trees and things, you see. We truly are products. We are the product. We're the human resource where all wealth comes from. And we're also the product. You can look at any product that comes off an assembly line and it goes through different stages to, to make it into this, from this into that. Many stages to get there. You're the same. And that's why you have standardized education. And again, you have this big controlling body, the United Nations, uh, and all the teachers' unions. All of them belong to the same club of a social indoctrination. Stalin said it. He said to keep power in a society, you must give good, incredible pay, he said, to the teachers. Because they, they do the initial indoctrination, you see. And also the police and so on. Those who run the system, administrators and civil servants, things like that. Uh, and it's the same system worldwide. It was even when he said it. <laughs> so it's all one big system. There are no sides to things. When they, they create a, a, an opposing force in a country, it's simply because it's only speed up through the Hegelian dialectic, speed up the process of assimilation of many little countries into one big country, one system. Once the system's there, they can simply say, okay, if you want to pretend you're a little country anymore, again, an independent, then on you go. You're, all you're doing is pretending, because now you have a whole social system, structures and administrative structures, structures and so on. And they all belong to the United Nations. And the UN, I've gone through the history of it before, and how it was set up by a private organization, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, Council on Foreign Relations, same organization, and how they set it up with all its institutions, all its departments, etc. as a kind of initial coordinator for world government. I won't go into it because you can go through, the, the, God knows so many talks I've given on it, over the years, you can go through and find it all at CuttingThroughMatrix.com in the archive section. We've got to remember, too, if you go back into the Fabian Society and the funders, not just the founders, but the funders of the Fabian Society, the, the top guys really were ultra-right-wing who wanted to bring in this controlled society, trained society, Millions and billions of people eventually. And they wanted to be run by experts, those who should properly run the world anyway, and administrators and so on. And uh, it was ultra far right. 
ultra far right, you see. But through careful spinning, they pretend that it's actually the left wing. It's all run by the same wing at the top. Well, there's two wings, but there's one body to the bird, right? And that's how the world's run. It's very, very simple. Very simple indeed. And you can't create change without the Hegelian dialectic. If you have a system and you want to change it into the next part, if even the same system with more control, you create opposition to the system that's in control. And through the bickering and fighting and so on, uh, you have, you have uh, changes made. But they're planned changes. This is changes that you wanted to have in the first place. It's as simple as that. And we're so incredibly well understood, and I mean it. So incredibly well understood. And there's never been a time in history where all the top behaviorists and psychologists work for all universities, they work for all governments, all government departments, with thousands of think tanks, mainly privately owned by, again, the big international corporate moguls who have their foundations, their front foundations, that dole out the cash to the universities and to the governments and so on. It's quite simple how it works. They all know the think tanks. And they know where it's going. They don't want a world where anything can, can any kind of system can come to, uh, to be. They don't want that. They never want that. Power people never want anything to upset their power and their control. And they want to leave everything to their children. So they are also uh, at the pinnacle of power and control. That's the way it is with the psychopathic types at the top. If the psychopath can't get immortality himself or herself, then they can get the nearest thing to it, which is their progeny taking over and running it the same way and furthering their whole power base and keeping the name alive, basically, of the family. We have under the Obama government, which is just the U.S. government, which is just an elite government at the top, a secret government at the top, like Britain and every other country. You have a kind of human brain project mapping the human brain. China's got its own one. They're all sharing information because there, there are no individual countries anymore, really. There's some bickering at some levels between power elites who want to make sure they get their own share for their own future and for their progeny's future. That's about it. That's about it. We don't matter. The rest of the people are just the peasants. We don't matter. And you, you find that they've got uh, this term they've been using for years now called neuroscience. The kind of coordinating science between all the other sciences uh, of psychology and behaviorism, psychiatry, etc., etc., and and pharma uh, drugs to do with psychiatry and psychology as well. Anything that, that that alters the human brain or thinking in any way is involved, including how to put media across to the people, how to prepare them in school for the life, and to push the agendas that have been instilled into them in school. Schools are part of the radicalization process. They've always used universities to push it even further, always. And university, at one time, remember, university was a very elite club. 
because nobody could afford it except ultra ultra wealthy in England at Oxford and etc. Uh, they had special laws made for the students so they could rampage through the streets and pillage and rape and all the rest of it and get off with it. It was such an elite's club. And today, with more, see the middle class getting into university in these days, they have a, an agenda too to make sure that, that those who are going to work as the movers and shakers for the masters at the top for the system uh, get well paid, well indoctrinated, and they're selected often in college. They're selected for their positions uh, serving the big system uh, in a more powerful capacity and a more well paid capacity uh, as well. So don't ever think for a, a second that university is there to really give you an education into truth and f- true facts and and all there is to know about any particular topic. It isn't at all. Over many years, it's become more evident. In fact, it has its own particular agendas. But uh, you don't, they don't bother so much. They didn't used to, used to bother so much with primary education. Uh, and so on, because most of the folk at that time didn't only matter. They used to concentrate pretty well on the on the high school, and then university. And then university was really where the professors were put in there to change society by indoctrinating the students, and they have no problem uh, taking big paychecks to indoctrinate students. Uh, to radicalize certain areas of society on behalf of the masters at the top again. Tonight I'm going to go through some of the very important aspects of manipulation of society, nations, power blocks, regions, call it what you want, or world. It's all the same, all the same techniques run by the same people. Let's take, for instance, this article here that came out a few years back. I read it on the air at the time. And it said, from Obama to Cameron... Why do so many politicians want a piece of Richard Taller? And it says that what's the big idea of Richard Taller, the economist quoted by David Cameron and Barack Obama? It comes down to this, if you're not, you're not as smart as you think. Humans, he believes, are less rational and more influenced by peer pressure and suggestion than governments and economists reckon. I love how they put this stuff across rather than tell you this is a, a complete, absolute science of manipulation. So economist assumes uh, people have brains like supercomputers that can solve anything, says Tyler, but human minds are more like really old Apple Macs with slow processing speeds and prone to frequent crashes. According to this view, voters are less Mr. Spock than Homer Simpson, and they could do with a bit of help. See, we need help to come to the right thoughts, you see, and ideas and conclusions. What Tyler terms a nudge to save more, eat more healthily, and do all the other things that they know they should. So there's a, a presumption right there that folk really should just do what they're told by their betters, and that's not what human life is. You take even the, the, the so-called Wild West of the U.S. when there were pioneers going across there. And they, they lived with danger every day. Life itself was an iffy concept, basically. 
they took the chances and they enjoyed taking chances and they made, some of them may have died fairly early, but it was their decisions to do so, you see. And, and that's what these, these guys at the top don't want. They want you to be a little robot, basically. Anyway, it goes on to say in this article, Cameron is so interested in the idea that in a speech last month he mentioned Tyler, his co-author Cass Sunstein, and even the fact they had a new book out called Nudge. And I've talked about that many times before. He then summed up their argument. One of the most important influences on people's behavior is what other people do. With the right prompting, we'll change our behavior to fit in with what we see around us. Like we're all little clones, you see. It was surely the best plug the two Chicago academics with a book about the obscure discipline of behavioral economics could hope for. There's nothing obscure about anything, folks. It's, as I say, neuroscience is a, is, oh, it's, it's, it's a vast science and well-tested. And they don't want to scare the public by it. They want me to think it's just a kind of an idea they're toying with. It says, but Tory interest in Tyler, and Tory is just conservative in Britain, has not stopped there. When he arrived in London last week to do some teaching, five senior conservatives met him for more than an hour to discuss his ideas and how they might work together. Steve Hilton, the party's head of strategy and Cameron's chief ideas man, was there as were Director of Research James O'Shaughnessy and Oliver Letwin, Member of Parliament and Head of the Party's Policy Review. Plans are being made for a weekend retreat in which shadow ministers get together with Taller and two or three of his associates to come up with policies. Cameron's aides named three areas where Taller may be able to help. How to make it socially unacceptable for the young to carry knives, encourage people to recycle and tackling the binge drinking and obesity. And again, uh, again, most folk who read this will think, well, that's not bad, you know, why shouldn't... This is not what they're on about, folks. This, this is a low-level thing, this, uh, these three items here. The nudge agenda is starting to creep into Tory policy. Now, don't forget this whole neuroscience uh, idea and science itself... It's across the board on all universities right now on how to teach, what, how to put things across, how to get the right outcome out of any particular indoctrination program they're into, you see, to get the right effect on the students so they come out with the right ideas and the right emotions. Because there's always, there's always emotions. Don't forget that associated with ideas and education. And that's where they become radicalized and so on, and they'll push throughout their life to push the next part of the agenda, never knowing that someone, it was someone else's idea for a different purpose altogether, a different outcome. Anyway, they talk about uh, Taller's new book. Uh, Cameron proposed that households should be told at the bottom of their gas and electricity bills whether they were using more energy than their neighbors or less. They've even talked, in fact, about websites for local areas where they'll, they'll print them up for folk to see what your neighbor is using and in, in, in shame them for using too much, you see. So by subtly using peer pressure, he argued, households might be encouraged into using energy more efficiently. One senior policy advisor to George Osborne makes even grander claims for the Tower's influence. Behavioral economics might be our equivalent of Gordon Brown's neoclassical endogenous growth theory. The reference to the philosophy espoused by Brown early in his tenure as Chancellor is a joke, but the suggestion that the Tories are taking behavioural economics seriously is not. 
other gurus are cited by the group that could form the next government. Chief among them is Robert uh, Cialdini, an American academic psychologist who covers much the same ground. It could be Cialdini or Cialdini. It's up to you. But it's especially interesting how governments persuade people. Cialdini uh, in regular contact with Conservative Central, Central Office and is likely to be brought over by the party soon to be addressed or to address Tory councils. If he follows them through camera, he may find the ideas of Taller and Cialdini take him on a rather big detour from the political road the Tories usually take. Under Margaret Thatcher and George, John Major, the party proclaimed markets as king and choice as good. Uh, that is not the lesson Taller wants to convey. In his view, people make bad choices quite often. See, understand, this is a complete elitist idea, you see. Choices that they, they both should and do not really want to make, such as scoffing that entire tube of Pringles and unfettered markets don't help. As economists' philosophies go, this is hardly true blue. Taller and his fellow behavioural economists also raise interesting questions about how far the arm of government should extend. It's expected that politicians intervene where an individual may pose harm to others. That is why driving is so heavily regulated. Rather more unusual for the government is to step in where an individual is harming no one but himself or herself. Should the powers that be really scheme about how we get rid of our rubbish? There's something worryingly illiberal about all this nudge stuff, says Danny Alexander, Liberal Democrat MP, who's also coordinating his party's manifesto. If governments wanting to change their behaviour don't need to explain what they're trying to do, how they're trying to do it, or what outcome they're after, then they're ignoring what voters want. And believe you me, this party guy will be exactly the same. He doesn't want his voters to know where he's going. Because they're all the same. They're all on the same agenda. In one system. If they're in one system, they've got to be in the same agenda. You understand that? One way Tyler ducks the political argument is by describing nudge as beyond left and right. It uses right-wing means to achieve progressive ends. This may be the first time an academic has ever tried the politician's trick of triangulation, but Tyler and Sunstein have the affiliations to prove it. In the U.S., it is Obama and the Democrats that consult him. There's no difference. Sunstein has been friends with Obama since the 1990s when both were law professors at the University of Chicago while Taller met the presidential hopeful when he was in the Illinois race for the Senate in 2004. Back then, Obama was, as he said, the skinny guy with a funny name and nobody, including me, had heard of him. But I was just blown away and for the first time in my life wrote a check to a politician, says Taller. And I wonder who his bosses were that gave him the money to put the check to Obama in the first place because they're all in it together, you know. He says that he talks a lot to Obama's camp, especially the chief economics advisor, Austin Goolsby. We gave Goolsby the book when it was still in proof. He read the whole thing and just lifted some parts. The Democratic proposals on automatically enrolling workers into pension schemes is classical nudge. The policy leaves it up to the employees to leave their pension schemes if they insist, but at best that inertia means most won't lift a finger either way. By leaving people the option of making bad choices, Taller and his cohort, cohort can deny the charge that they want to the return of the nanny state. Their vision could be described as the au-pair state, a, fo- a more informal, less heavy-handed, but still ever so slightly intrusive creature. 
And it goes on and on and on. But the fact is, you understand, uh, this is not a new thing. They've been doing this for a long time using nudges and uh, and and more direct forms of basic indoctrination in schools. And by indoctrination, indoctrination is always a, goes along according to an agenda. It's not a willy-nilly thing. It's definitely an agenda. You know, they want you all to come out from a class with the same opinion on this this topic that they've been indoctrinating you into. And it's easy to do by simply the manipulation of data and the omission of a lot of other data that would counter the impression you want to leave. It's quite a simple thing, you understand. And then there's this article here. And... By Cass Sunstein, it says, There's a backlash against nudging, but it was never meant to solve every problem, it says. And it says, The human brain is a miraculous thing, but as behavioral economists have demonstrated, it sometimes leads us in unfortunate, even self-destructive directions. We procrastinate, we suffer from self-control problems, we can be unrealistically optimistic, our attention is limited, and we might not see important features of social situations. As a result, we can lose a lot of money. We might even lose our lives. But we're always losing money because uh, even if you save it, it's getting devalued all the time. And it has been for, for centuries. You know, that's how it works. Says, Armed with these findings, both private and public institutions have been exploring the potential of nudges. Approaches that steer people towards certain outcomes while also allowing them to go their own way. The whole idea, by the way, is not to, is to make sure by the proper nudging and indoctrination and so on that you're not going to go your own way. That, that's the point of it. So GPS is a classical example of a nudge. So are disclosure requirements, warnings, email reminders, statements about social norms. Who gives you the social norms, folks? Since most people pay their taxes on time, for instance, the use of bright colours and large fonts, simplified forms, cafeterias that put healthy foods first, and default rules which might automatically enrol people in a pension plan. The beauty of nudges is that when they're well chosen, now what's well chosen I mean? Who decides what, when they're well chosen? They've already told you your pension plans are going to go belly up anyway, they've spent all the cash, especially as government run, right? It says, anyway, it says they make people's lives better. So they decide that their lives can be better while maintaining freedom of choice. Really? Here you're getting nudged. You don't even know you're getting nudged. But they've it. if you don't know you're getting nudged in the first place, how are you going to have choice? Moreover, they even don't cost a lot and they tend to have big effects. In an economically challenging time, it's no wonder that governments all over the world, and it's not a coincidence, eh? uh, including in the US and the UK, have been showing a keen interest in nudging. It's all over the internet too, by the way. That's when you punch things up. And, oh, people who looked up this also looked up that. Really? Well, the other that's are meant to make you go along with what they see is, again, the idea that people go along with the herd. And the bigger the number in the herd, the more they'll go along with it. Inevitably, we have been seeing a backlash. Some people object that nudges are a form of unacceptable paternalism. This is an objection that has intuitive appeal, but there is a real problem with it. Nudging is essentially inevitable, and so it's pointless to object to nudging as such. So folk trying to manipulate is going to be inevitable, but folk are doing it really um, invisibly, you might say. It's okay, you know, that's what I'm telling you. This is the private sector nudges all the time. Again, that's the Bernays concept too. That's where a lot of this stuff came from. 
Whenever a government has websites, communicates with citizens, operates cafeterias or maintains offices that people will visit, it nudges whether or not it intends to. Nudges might not be readily visible, but they are inevitably there. If we are sceptical about official nudging, we may limit how often it occurs, but we cannot possibly eliminate it. Other sceptics come from the opposite direction, contending that in light of what we we know about human errors, we should be focusing on mandates and bans. They ask when we know people make bad decisions, why should we insist on preserving freedom of choice? It is true that nudges are not a sufficient approach to some of our most serious problems, such as violent crime, poverty, and climate change. <laughs> climate change. <laughs> Nonetheless, they have five major advantages over coercive approaches. First, people's situations are highly diverse. By allowing people to go their own way, nudges might reduce the costs of one-size-fits-all solutions. Second, public officials have limited information. If official nudges are based on mistakes, the damage is far less severe than in the case of bans because people remain free to ignore them. Third, public officials do not always have the purest of motivations. They may be affected by the influence of well-organized private groups. If so, a major safeguard that people can go their own way. Fourth, people may feel frustrated and angry if deprived of their ability to choose. When a government provides information or offers a warning, it simultaneously tells citizens that in the end they have the right to make their own decisions. Understand, the whole point of this is so you won't make your own decision, you make the right decision, which is the one they want. (laughs) Fifth, freedom of choice can be and often is seen as an intrinsic good that a government should honour. It was to treat people with dignity. This is governments that, are, that want us to reduce the population, increase abortions, and uh, start bumping off more and more elderly. This is, this is not a point about the subjective experience of frustration and anger. It's a matter of respect. Well, they really respect us. If you notice that governments, how much governments really respect you. Eh? It's true that these points will have different degrees of force in different contexts. Consider three illustrative problems and increasing order of complexity. Number one, suppose an institution is spending a lot of money on paper. A small nudge, a double-sided default on printers, will produce significant savings. The institution might well select that default on the grounds that will cut costs and help the environment in the process. Now suppose that some administrators ask whether double-sided printing should be made compulsory. Their answer is plain. For many people, single-sided printing is best. A mandate would be hard to justify. Actually, the, the, the big corporations and so on, they make the paper, would be uh, lobbying the government to, to use more paper. I mean, to understand, they even give you ridiculous examples. Because of inertia, many employees fail to sign up for pension plans. No wonder. You know, we've been told that they're worth nothing. Research show, and mind you, they've used all the money and made fortunes out of the investments abroad and loans, etc., with massive uh, <laughs> interest rates. Research shows that automatic enrollment greatly increases participation rates, and thus people's savings, <laughs> while also preserving freedom of choice. Unfortunately, there's a potential problem here, which is that the default contribution rate is lower than what employees would choose, say 3%. Then the result of automatic enrollment might be to decrease savings because their default rate turns out to be sticky. This is an ironic result for those who want to use nudges to increase people's welfare during retirement. You can't win with a money game because you don't run it. You don't own it. The guys at the top own it and manipulate it all. The natural response is not to abandon nudges, but to choose a better default. And the default is your default position of your indoctrination. That's why you can blush if anybody talks about 
um, the gay lifestyle or anything like that, you know, because you've been indoctrinated to feel embarrassed if you have a, a subconscious or unconscious or whatever you want to call it, objection to anything or, or, or even fear or maybe even loathing or whatever, you see. It give you a default position. On any topic, one possibility is automatic escalation which increases saving rates each year until the employee hits their predetermined maximum and our possibility to select a higher default contribution. No one denies that nudges can go wrong if they do the challenges to get them right. So constant trial and error as they indoctrinate you, you see. Motor vehicles emit pollution. Uh, many economists think that it's a corrective tax is the best response to ensure that drivers pay the social costs of their activity. Another racket. Nudgers would add that at the time of purchase, consumers might not pay enough attention to the costs of driving your car. An obvious nudge would be to develop a a clear, simple fuel economy label. It's a good idea, but would such a label prove effective? Maybe some or many consumers would ignore it. If so, we might have a behaviorally informed argument for strong fuel economy standards. That argument would emphasize two kinds of consumer savings from such standards, such as money and time. In the U.S., the vast majority of the benefits from recent fuel economy standards have come from those savings. If the benefits of those standards is greatly exceeds the costs, then they, and they appear to do so, then they deserve widespread support. And they give you rubbish examples, folks. But basically, anyway, all they ever do is, is give you penalties on things. Yeah, punitive penalties. That's what they really do, don't they? But that's one other article. They try to make it kind of a, a light-hearted idea. Like it's all suggestions. You understand? No, no. This has been implemented across the board for years. As I say, through your all your education it is. Uh, and so you come out of school indoctrinated into what is going to change in your lifetime. And you don't even know it, so you, but you're, you've already got the opinions instilled into you, you see. So you'll say, that's okay, I don't mind that. And, and that's how they indoctrinate you folks. It's, it's, it's not a light-hearted thing at all, you see. And now I'll go into another one here. Nudging news producers, because you understand I've mentioned quite, a, uh, quite many times actually about how news is changing and how you're all being nudged or trained, carefully trained, uh, that you're not really getting news anymore. You're getting trivia and, and garbage and entertainment as news. And uh, the idea in this big socialistic enterprise of running the world, this new, new world, you see, is to make you not participate, again, through lots of nudges and indoctrination, in the big affairs of life, and to leave all the big decisions to these special folk above you, who are just happen to be there, you know. And you, you will accept that they just happen to be there by a natural law of some kind. And you just stay at the bottom, do what you're told, and, and play the things you're told to play at, you see. That's the world they want. And, and when that's uniform and you're all playing at what you're supposed to play at, then you are the good citizens. You've sta- got a quality approval stamp on you. You're not a thinker. You're safe, you see, because you are the product. So news has completely changed. And it's, it, it, this last few months has been a complete uh, show of how it's changed. There are no uh, 
journalists in the mainstream who have even gone into the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership in any depth or, or, or massive criticism even. Because their opinion becomes your opinion. Oh, well, you know, if it's, uh, if it's so secret and, that and it's supposed to be secret and it's for our own good that it's secret, then we'll accept it as secret. It's as simple as that. Now, nudging and all this stuff, this, this basically neuroscience, it's all to do with neuroscience and behaviorism. It says nudging news producers and consumers towards more thoughtful, less polarized discourse. And um, this is a time of extraordinary domestic and international policy challenges. Americans need high-quality news. Readers and viewers must decipher the policy options the country faces and the manner in which various decisions affect them personally. Well, how can you, you make decisions on things when it's all secret now? Let's see your secret for reasons of national security or international allied security or it's, uh, it's private corporate security. Huh? It is often not readily apparent how to assess complicated policy choices and what the best steps are for moving forward. Having poor quality news coverage is especially problematic when the political process is sharp, sharply polarised. Also has been documented by political scientists Tom Mann and Norman Ornstein. The United States has a Congress today where the most conservative Democrat is to the left of the most moderate Republican. There are many reasons for this spike in polarization, but there is little doubt that the news media amplify and exacerbate social and political divisions. Well, they do play that game for sure because there's no division. Too often, journalists follow a Noah's Ark approach to coverage in which a strong liberal is paired with a vocal conservative in an ideological food fight. The result is polarization of discourse and false equivalence in reporting. This lack of nuanced analysis confuses viewers and makes it difficult for them to sort out the contrasting facts and opinions. People get the sense that there are only two policy options and that there are few graduations or complexities in the positions that are reported. This is in this paper, West and Stone reviewed challenges facing the news media in an age of political polarization. This includes hyper-competitiveness in news coverage, a dramatic decline in local journalism and resulting nationalization of the news, and the personalization of coverage. After discussing these problems and how they harm current reporting, they present several ideas for nudging news producers and consumers towards more thoughtful and less polarizing responses. And they give you the the recommendations, such as journalists should go beyond the Noah's Ark reporting to strive for more diversity. They should include a broader range of sources and add links to outside organizations that provide more in-depth coverage. News consumers should be nudged by web portals and search engines to choose in-depth materials as opposed to the most popular items being read. Social media needs to incorporate broader means of reader reaction in their platforms. Funders should endow investigative journalists to protect them from outside pressures. Media organizations should consider partnerships with universities. Ha 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 ha. These are the guys who drive it all. And non-profit organizations, yeah, I guess who funds them all, and leverage their expertise. And citizens should utilize multi-channel viewing as a way to escape a false sense of balance and in order to hear more complete perspectives. 
and I'll put these links up tonight. Now, the thing is, understand this is really um, across the board and everything. Entertainment, uh, indoctrination through education, etc., etc. You have no idea how complete this is. You have no idea at all. Now, I'm also going to talk about this, for instance, because all things come from the universities. Universities, remember, create the, 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 the they pick the helpers for the system and then for the next stage for their age group, you see, that particular generation. And so they're, they're very careful in selecting and watching and studying students. There's more studying done on the students than there is on what they teach the students. Here's an article here, and it's from MIT. Global Dimensions of Digital Activism. And it says, many articles and books have been written debating the validity of the Facebook revolution. Those who see social media as a key factor in spreading the ideas of activism and protest uh, cite Clay Shirky's Here Comes Everybody and Howard Rheingold's Smart Mobs, which document the ways in which peer-to-peer communications networks have mobilized large ad hoc groups. For example, international media coverage of the Arab Spring focused heavily on the role social media may have played in mobilizing participation in street protests. Now, you've got all the intelligence agencies involved in these things too, remember. Reviewing a, a memoir by Egyptian activist Will Gonim, the New York Times titled an article How an Egyptian Revolution Began on Facebook, tracing the, the Tahrir Square uh, protests in the, of the Facebook group Gonan started to protest the brutal killing by police of Khaled Saeed. Those who question the importance of digital communication tools and mobilization, however, cite uh, Evgeny Morozov's critique of online activism as slacktivism and Malcolm Gladwell's argument that meaningful activism requires strong offline ties to mobilize engagement. One way through this apparent conflict is to note that many of the people involved with organizing street protests see social media as a key tool, where they are right or wrong about the potentials for digital media, for a social change, the perceived efficacy of these tools helps explain why so many people turn to them. At the same time, the limits of digital media to transform governance are becoming apparent. Against that term in governance, you see. Zainab uh, Tufes's work, or Feki's work, on the Gizi uh, Park protests in Turkey suggest circumstances where social media drives thousands into the streets but doesn't meaningfully threaten people in power. Instead, she, she suggests that social media may make it easier to build large but fragile movements by making it easier to bring people on, into the streets, allowing organizers to, to forgo the hard work of compromise and coalition building that used to be required to organize a large public protest. Opposition movements are highly visible and diverse, but lack the underlying structure they would need to threaten powerful institutions. These lively and stimulating debates about the potentials and limits of online media for social change tend to overfocus on the relationship between social networks and street protests, the charismatic uh, megafauna of activism. A broader view of the social media and social change ecosystem recognizes that there are paths towards change beyond mass mobilization designed to oust governments. Now, this is getting taught at universities, you see, because universities are the hub, really, of the techniques. That's where lots, of, especially ones like MIT, 
which, as you well know, is heavily funded by governments and by uh, the big foundations. This is not every social problem is best solved by ousting those in power, and many valid theories of change focus on changing public opinion, influencing existing decision makers, or other less abrupt paths towards change. Now, if you go towards change, that means there's a plan change, right? To understand the possible significance of social media and social change, we need a broader understanding that we can get from considering the characteristics of protests in Tahrir and Taksim. With this set of essays, we aim to broaden understanding of field of digital activism. Our project is inspired by digital activism. Researcher Mary Joyce's ambitious attempt to build a database of cases of digital activism. The Digital Activism Researches Project called a Global Digital Activism Dataset. And the links on this for those who want to look it up. It includes over 2,000 instances of digital activism from 120 countries. Sourced from news reports, specialist media like Global Voices. And cases submitted to Joyce as well as her own original research. Now... You understand, too, uh, students now in university seldom inquire, very few of them will inquire, as to why they're being taught activism, planned activism with this particular agendas and so on, and that's called learning institution. Most folk don't question these things. Why is the university today the hub for all these planned changes? who designed all these planned changes, and not just the ones that they see, but the ones we above that. Huh? And why are they using them and their money as a pagan university uh, to brainwash them? No one questions things. This is quite amazing, isn't it? This other article here is from another think tank, you see, in an institution too, and it says, uh, the Brookings Institution, in 1998, Ralph Terkowitz, a vice president of the Washington Post company, got to know Sergey Brin and Larry Page, two young Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who were looking for backers. Terkowitz remembers paying a visit to the garage where they were working and keeping his car and driver waiting outside while he had a meeting with them about the idea that eventually became Google. An early investment in Google might have transformed the post-financial condition, uh, which became dire a dozen years later, by which time Google was a multi-billion dollar company. But nothing happened. You see, we kicked it around, Turkowitz recalled, but the then fat post company had other irons in the fires. And they give you a Thomas Jefferson quotation as well, you know. And then they go on about things that happen uh, in planning revolutionary changes. Such missteps are not surprising. People living through a time of revolutionary change usually fail to grasp what's going on around them. The American news business would get a C- minus or worse from any fair-minded professor evaluating its performance in the first phase of the digital age. Big, slow-moving organizations steeped in their traditional ways of doing business could not accurately foresee the next stages of technological whirlwind. And that's rubbish, too, because, believe you me, all the intelligence agencies were way ahead of all this stuff. And let's not forget who used uh, the Internet long before the public got the use of it. Don't forget that for a second. This is obviously new technology radically altering the ways in which we learn, teach, communicate, 
and are entertained. It's impossible to know today where these upheavals may lead, but that's nonsense too, but where they may take us matters profoundly. How the digital revolution uh, plays out over time will be particularly important for journalism and therefore to the United States, because journalism is the craft that provides the lifeblood of a free democratic society. The Founding Fathers knew this. They believed that their experiment in self-governance would require active participation by an informed public, which could only be possible if people had unfettered access to information. James Madison, author of the First Amendment guaranteeing freedom of speech of the press, summarized the proposition succinctly. The advancement and diffusion of knowledge is the only guardian of true liberty. Thomas Jefferson explained to his French friend, Marquis de Lafayette, the only security of all is in a free press. The force of public opinion cannot be resisted when permitted freely to be expressed. American journalists cherish another side of Jefferson's remarks where it left to me to decide where we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government. I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. The journalistic ethos that animated many of the founders were embodied by a printer, columnist, and editor from Philadelphia named Benjamin Franklin. The printing press, which afforded Franklin his livelihood, remained the engine of American democracy for more than two centuries. But then, in the second half of the 20th century, new technologies began to undermine long-established means of sharing information. First, television and then the computer and the internet transformed the way people get their news. Nonetheless, even at the end of the century, the business of providing news and analysis was still a profitable enough undertaking that could support large organizations of professional reporters and editors in print and broadcast media. Now, however, in the first years of the 21st century, accelerating technological transformation has undermined the business models that kept American news media afloat, raising the possibility that the great institutions on which we have depended for news of the world may not survive. These are painful words to write for someone who spent 50 years as a reporter and editor of the Washington Post. And this guy goes through his career and so on. So in fact, digital technology has flummoxed the owners of traditional news media, especially newspapers from the beginning. And it gives you some examples of it and so on. And it says, um, But putting newspapers online has not remotely restored their profitability for the moment. The New York Times is making a small profit, but its advertising revenues are not reassuring. The Washington Post made profits of more than $120 million a year in the late 1990s, and today it loses money. Last year, more than $40 million. Newsweek magazine failed, and Time magazine is teetering one strong regional newspapers from Los Angeles to Miami, from Chicago to Philadelphia, find themselves in desperate straits. Their survival is in doubt. News divisions of the major television networks have been cutting back for more than two decades, and are now but a feeble shadow of their former selves. Well, we all know this. That's why you get nothing but trivia. Overall, and, and, and people still think that's news. I mean, very careful and not saying, hey, by, by the way, we're feeding you trivia. Let's give it to you. And you think, well, it's still called the news hour, and you watch it. Overall, the economic devastation would be difficult to exaggerate, and it goes on and on and on. Now, the, even these articles are superficial articles in themselves. And the big top think tanks of the world for years have been working on the transformation of what's going to be called news as they keep you out of the big picture. And you'll accept the fact that what you're getting given as news 
you'll accept it as news, even though it's nothing but trivia or scary stories meant to manipulate you into stampeding towards the desired direction, things like that. And you get simply decrees from governments on laws not get passed down. Though the old Soviet way, that was how it was there. It was very much like the BBC, in fact, and how they present what was called news there. The department of so-and-so has declared, blah, 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 and you better go along with it. And this department here of food or agriculture has declared, blah, 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 and you better go along with that. And that's the new type of news that you're given. The rest of it is trivia uh, and nonsense and entertainment, you see. Because they know they've been working on all these sciences and putting lots of your tax money into research on all of you to do all the new nudging, you see, using massive behaviorist psychology and massive neuroscience, all the combined sciences that deal with you in running society, uh, with, to give you the right nudges and impressions and beliefs and opinions on every topic, etc., you see. They want a standardized society. That's what they want. They don't want individual thinkers at the bottom level. They said long ago that those who evolved to the highest evolution were already in power and, and were multi-billionaires back in the 19th century. And their offspring, too, as long as they kept in breeding with each other, with other wealthy, successful people, their offspring would, would carry on the traditions of rulership quietly behind the scenes. So this neuroscience now is what runs your minds, gives your opinions, and all the rest of it. Now I'm going to put up some PDFs tonight, done by universities and think tanks, on this new system of indoctrination. And I hope you read them because they're, they're interesting, and it gives you, uh, at least again, a superficial idea of how things are being given to you, fed to you, to make sure you get the right opinions uh, on behalf of the masters who planned them and designed them. Now remember, too, that a lot of alternative media is there to take up some of the slack, too, by making their money, big money, too, some of them, uh, by shouting out emotive topics which terrify you. And when you're terrified of things and running on emotion in crisis, then you're not thinking straight at all. You're being stampeded, and you, you can't make the, the really rational decisions. So that's counterintelligence, you see. Now, for more, again, go into cuttingthroughimages.com, go over the talks I've given over the years, and the archive section. Remember, you can buy the books and discs as well. They help me take along, and you can donate to me as well. This is not a huge business idea uh, to make some kind of... Um, name for myself, it's because it's important we truly understand. At least, and I'll tell you, I might take, like Orwell said, you know, in 1984, it might take a thousand years to get uh, uh, anything near freedom or, or, or liberty at all, or free thoughts. Who knows? It might be much sooner. Who knows? From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God, your God, school with you. <laughs>